guess I'll start because I'm going to do something I don't usually do, which is read part of it. Usually I don't because it's dangerous and boring, um, but um, I think I'm going to try it. Um, partly because I'm trying to work through a, a draft for a book, and that can be helpful. Um, and hopefully leave time for you to go to sort of say, that's crazy. Um, and I, I, okay, so w one thing I'll do before I do actually start is just to set up, um, first of all, to set up a image. Um, I think an image is an image of, set up an image. Okay, so uh, the image is, is an image of biology. Everyone associates Gadamer with text. And that's important in many ways. He comes out of textual traditions based in both classical um, classical studies, particularly of Plato and Aristotle and the pre-Socratics, and he comes out of tradition of biblical hermeneutics, of course. Um, but actually, there's an interesting other side to Gadamer. His father was a biologist, an award-winning, very important biologist. Uh, he was almost forced into biology by his father, and he had to fight to go into poetry. And sometimes I think those two disciplines muddled in his mind. Poetry and biology aren't so different for him. And the part of Aristotle that he himself kind of brings out is the part of Aristotle that is concerned with forms. If he reads Plato first, really Gadamer's a Platonist, but if he then moves on to Aristotle through Plato, he's interested in the forms in Aristotle. He's interested in how they turn into organic concepts. So the idea of the, how a seed knows that it's got to become an oak tree it has, the seed has within it a form, it has, and form in Aristotle is, is teleological. It's about knowing what you're going to become. So whereas Plato's notion of the form is very static, uh, Aristotle's kind of appropriation of that idea is more about telos, transformation, change, moving towards the whole thing that is a tree, which encompasses seed and full-blown oak tree together in one form. And you can see, of course, all beings in that way. A human is a funny little cluster of cells, it's an old dead person and it's all the things in between. The form of the human contains all of that in Aristotle. And that's in some ways that's coming out of Aristotle's fascination with biology. The idea that Aristotle is much more of a scientist, a natural scientist than Plato is. Um, and so that he's interested in transformation, growth and development. And that, that interest again links with Gadamer's interest in the vitalist philosophers of Germany. I, I said in the first of these seminars that Gadamer's always picking up figures who get ignored in German history by a lot of other thinkers. And he's very interested in the pantheists, Spinoza, Leibniz, etc. Uh, and he's also quite interested in these figures like Ertinger. Um, he's interested in Francis Bacon. He's interested in all kinds of characters who are bringing together the natural sciences. And he's interested in vitalist thought, the idea that there is a kind of a, a vital energy and force within nature that unravels itself through history, both through biology, actual organic matter, but also not just in biology, also through the development of mind from biology, the development of culture from mind, the development of meaning from culture. So that in vitalism, you have the potential for seeing the whole of nature as encompassing uh, culture, history, humanity, and all the things that we see as not, not in fact um, natural. And that holism uh, is going to be a really important image for understanding his approach to text and meaning and human nature, I think. And I'll, I'll kind of come back to that at the end. 
Um, okay, so let me start with a concrete picture from his youth. As a child, the lonely young Hans Georg Gadamer, he was very lonely, his mother died when he was young, he had an older brother who was, had severe epilepsy and who was sent away uh, to a sanatorium, actually died in the closing years of the Nazi uh, reign. And Gadamer spent most of his childhood very much alone. He had quite a harsh father. As a child, the lonely young Hans Georg Gadamer was given a bicycle to learn to ride as an amusement that his father and stepmother thought would be suitable for a boy who all too often found himself alone. In the process of teaching himself the art of bicycle riding, he made the key discovery that no matter how much he quote-unquote clung paralytically to the handlebars, uh, he could not force the object to follow his will. Right, you can't just take the bike and go... It doesn't work like that, learning to ride a bike. That's what makes it a little bit hard. Uh, only by relaxing and letting the bicycle find its way, by collaborating with the bicycle, with gravity, etc., uh, in order to create equilibriums, quote-unquote, could he get anywhere at all. Such childish games were forgotten later in his years as a young man learning to appreciate poetry and to follow the various different truth games that were going on in philosophy. But the concrete physical experience of the skills needed to play with something uh, resurfaced half a century later as a, a core analogy in Truth and Method, in the crucial, crucial section of Truth and Method when he talks about the ontology of art as play. Um, in this section, Gadamer likens all understanding to the play that we do, uh, understanding any language, any culture, any particular text or linguistic medium, any form of expression, any semantic um, system, is like a play, the play of a game or, his quote, the play of light, the play of the waves, the play of gears or parts of a machinery, the interplay of limbs, the play of forces, the play of gnats in the air, even a play on words. This concrete kind of joy in collaboration that you find in play, you have rules, you have an object often, a ball or something else, um, you have other people who are also following this, this set of rules, this concrete joy in collaboration and immersing oneself in a broader dance of forces that eventually yields a wonderful new experience, uh, which indeed almost physically, um, there are probably chairs just outside, if you want to pull, get one and bring one in, it's um, so this, this idea of play, I mean, in some ways it goes back to some of Sloterdijk's images of things that make us vital, strong, vigorous, forceful and healthy. This notion of something that creates a kind of a vitality and health would be later confirmed uh, by Gadamer's insights into the experience of art. For him, that play and that bicycle riding were not so different from what happens in art, uh, in poetry, and would eventually become, in his philosophical hermeneutics, the exemplary paradigm of understanding as a universal mode of human being. Okay, we're going to see again and again that understanding for him, whether reading a text or whatever, talking to someone, is never just a, a hermeneutic process of interpretation. This is not interpretation studies. This is back to phenomenology, and back to phenomenology as ontology, as the fundamental mode of human being. Um, so Gadamer's hermeneutics is widely understood then as a theory and method for linguistic and cultural interpretation, but it was really conceived as a platform for regaining a kind of an understanding of the world and the human. Um, 
and growing through the process of reflection that he went through in his early, very modest historical studies of Plato. You know, he's, he's studying under Heidegger, under Paul Natoff, under these grand philosophers, phenomenologists, and he's writing these little studies on Plato. And everyone's thinking, gosh, this guy has no ambition. Um, growing through that, through phenomenology's pressures to develop universal insights into the constitutive nature of human consciousness, Gadamer came increasingly to the realization that his topic was not only the understanding of specific texts, but of all understanding. And as the foundation of understanding, all awareness. And as the foundation of awareness, the nature of all human experience. One gets the sense that unlike the philosophers who had set out to answer the big questions, Gadamer was surprised to find that he had gradually arrived accidentally at becoming a philosopher himself. He became a philosopher half by accident. Um, but his kind of Socratic interest in letting insights, he has this idea when he reads a lot of Socrates, he's, it's great to read his little book. People keep saying to me, I can't get interested in Gadamer history from now, this is so boring. Um, what else can I read? Uh, one book is his, his series of essays on Plato, Dialogue and Dialectic. And one of the nice things about that is he's really talking all the way through his studies on Plato about his hero. You get this sense of this is how it should be done. That's his story. And for him, the story of Socrates' life is the story of so many big things well. And that Socratic interest in letting insights show themselves from the material, start with the conversation, let the insight arise from it, um, and let them lead us toward the good, meant that he felt a responsibility to carefully voice what he called in the title of one essay, the universality of hermeneutic re reflection. So it's a universal thing, but he very gradually lets that become clear. Um, having been a student of some of Germany's brightest thinkers, Gadam was eventually encouraged in his 50s to produce his own great work, uh, Truth and Method. Now, this is not the clearest, most innovative, most intellectually striking, or even the most important of Gadamer's works, quite frankly, Truth and Method. Uh, yet it was crafted to be the foundation for all that he wanted to say. And I'll talk about what it's about in a moment, but just briefly, one can read, it, it, it seems a very obscure text. It talks about um, Kantian aesthetics, it goes on and talks about concepts of play, it goes on and talks about tact and t concepts of taste under German Romanticism. It moves on to Dilthar and the, the development of historicism, and later it goes on to uh, sort of Kantian aesthetics. And, and you're not quite sure what he's doing with it. But really, it's good to read the whole thing as a, a classic tale of fall and redemption. Right? So in that respect, he's doing the same as a lot of other people at the time. Um, in this Gadamerian narrative of the West, pre-Enlightenment German Romanticism, Frey, preserved earlier Hellenic influences in a holistic understanding of humanity. There's a holism there. Uh, humanity is seen as a portion of nature that deals in complex, interwoven experiences and ideas. So if you read the later Plato, not just the Republic, Plato acknowledges that concepts, ideas, meanings, languages are very complex and interwoven. He sounds like Derrida almost. Uh, meaning disseminates itself infinitely into a wide diversity of other meanings. Um, and, and Gadamer says that, that that's very good. Um, so German and Romanticism is preserving that vision. Uh, and it's comprehending all of the different influences, experiences, and ideas of human experience through an ongoing organic process of communication. So we have dialogue, we have dialectic. We're not scientifically creating a theory and forcing it onto people. We're letting dialogue happen. Um, and the fall is that this idea becomes tragically altered 
with the subjectivization of the concept of communal judgment. Okay, so this idea at this time that people are able to dialogue, and through dialogue you get a sense very quickly of shared assumptions, of something like a, a sense of each other's understanding. Um, you haven't got a dictionary, you're not pretending that you have, um, if you like, longed, put it in Saussurean terms, you don't have a fixed language. Everyone knows that it's parole, that it's speech, and that you're kind of throwing ideas back and forth between yourselves, and that's actually how language works. But something called communal judgment, which I'll talk more about, um, that had been the basis for culture, gets subjectivized. So what's going to happen is the regularities of natural science. Here science has a, has a problematic role in this. Demote this kind of very imprecise sense of judgment that we have when we see, when we respond, we understand, we communicate. It demotes this and says it's not precise enough and it's too individual. Um, the judgments of taste and philosophers such as Kant complete this process of alienating factual sciences from aesthetic, imprecise, uh, human interactive, what he calls taste. In so doing, he separates the scientific from the arts, effectively the natural from the human sciences, um, and also the outer, the external, the definite world from the inner world, which is seen as kind of messy and, and difficult to deal with. And he doesn't really realize, Gadamer would argue, I think at the time, that what he's doing is separating out um, a specific form of human discourse, a scientific form, from the more broad reality of human discourse, which is this a certain kind of very imprecise uh, sense of meaning as a interactive kind of process. Um, and as a result, we, lose, we not only lose sight of the character of the truths that we deal with, particularly in culture, in art, and in human life, but we also lose sight of our own nature as part of the natural world growing and adjusting according to complex environmental interactions in just the way that organisms uh, from trees to marine wildlife do in their own organic systems. So when I interact with you as a child and I gradually gain uh, language, I gain concepts of beauty, of goodness, of ethics, all the different forms of meaning in which we live, it's, you kind of have this idea it's not so different from a tree growing and constantly interacting with soil conditions, with climate, with wind, with a range of different things. Okay, so we are, we are like the tree. Um, parenthetical. So most of Gadamer's narrative subsequently is taken up with charting the gradual return uh, of the truth, of our situation, through various heroic, flawed, but her basically heroic processes that we see in different hermeneutic disciplines, mainly in aesthetics, in history, so that's where Dilthey comes in, and the study of language, and that's partly where Heidegger comes in, all these people who are gradually trying to pull back some of that holism. Um, so just to go a little bit deeper into that notion of communal sense or tact or taste, that it's the heart of what he thinks is the right way to understand meaning. In Truth and Method, he begins by highlighting the fact that the natural sciences seek their own distinctive kind of knowledge, which is essentially aimed at a what he calls a progressive knowledge of regularity. That's really what science wants to do. It wants to chart regularities, repetition, and progressively get a, a higher and higher, more and more extensive knowledge of those regularities. It's a very specific project. The telos behind it, the goal, is so that you can predict. Right? That's straightforward. And actually, this goes back to Hume. 
Uh, Hume says, look, don't pretend there's causality. All we need to really do is chart where we see regularities and use that to make a guess about the future. And that's fine. That's all we need to do. We don't even need to turn this into a claim about the truth of a causal law. Let's just accept that there are regularities we can see and we can use. Um, and he says that that's an important project we see in science, a project guided on its way by groups such as the Paris Occamists in the scholastic period, or this, the history of the development of a search for cer certainty. Uh, and indeed Newton, who emphasized the study of regularities and called them laws and helped to advance the notion that laws are very important, that we need to find them. And Newton then is influential on people like Kant, who wants to find laws of the mind. Uh, now, this form of thought, so useful for the fundamentally practical purposes of prediction, based on induction, broadening of uh, evidence, and deduction from observed regularities, is important, but different, however, from the forces with which the human sciences deal and the kind of knowledge that they seek. So you can't use that model for any of the other spheres of knowledge. It's inappropriate. That was a very specific project. The distinction is blurred within the modern Western academic taxonomy of disciplines, in which the human sciences um, often end up being targeted at scientific kinds of knowledge. And the social sciences confuse things by kind of sitting in between the two. Social sciences actually are often like the natural sciences. They're not trying to understand, they're trying to predict. So a lot of sociology is actually aimed at predicting what's going to happen in a society. It's not necessarily trying to explain it. And that's why, actually, it often comes up with what seem slightly shallow explanations, because, to be fair, it's not necessarily what they're trying to do. Um, or there are others who are trying to do something else, but the goals get mixed up, the categories get mixed up. But Gadamer tries to take us back to the cusp of the loss of that distinction, a historical moment filled with little-known figures from German Romanticism. Uh, he's particularly fond of Hermann Helmholtz, who distinguished between logical induction and what he called artistic instinctive induction. So he said induction is what we do. We see data, we generalize. Right? And you go all the way back to people like um, Hegel and those concerned with logic beforehand, they say the nature of thought is to take a piece of data and to generalize from it. This all goes back to Socrates, to Plato's influence. That's fine, but Helmholtz says logical induction and artistic instinctive, quote-unquote artistic instinctive induction, are very different kinds of generalization from data. Um, and in the in the in in um, logical induction, the mind simply observes and mathematically multiplies the phenomenon. This happens here; it seems it could happen here again. But in this artistic instinctive induction, Helmholtz says it must the mind must instead surf through the range of meanings, symbolisms, ideas that are out there, linked by analogies, by associations, by narratives and stories of experience into a very complex web of meaning. Um, if the sciences of the British Enlightenment philosophers Mill, Locke, Hume, uh, and Ger their German philosophers, uh, followers such as Kant, Kant of course is really fascinating with the, fascinating with the British Enlightenment thinkers, if they were concerned with regularity, then the arts of the German Romantic thinkers from Goethe to von Humboldt to Droysen and Dilthey were concerned with the structures and principles that govern this hermeneutic realm of meanings. In a sense, Gadam suggests later that this can be seen as a division that has its roots in Aristotle's interest in physics and Plato's concern with ideas. Um, so we've got kind of uh, scientific Aristotelians and the arts-related Platonists. Um, and again, Platonism later comes to mean something else, kind of a Gnostic Christian rereading of Platonism. But if you read the later Plato, it's not quite that kind of thing. But for Gadamer, uh, 
the form of inquiry that you see in the arts reaches far beyond questions of practical textual interpretation or philosophy of language. It concerns the very nature of the meaningfulness of our ex experiential world, uh, the meaningfulness, the nature, the structure of the medium of consciousness in which we live, and not just the medium of consciousness in which we live, but through which we live. We are living as consciousness, and in fact, of which we are constituted. We are consciousness. What we are is meaning worlds, nodes of meaning. Um, so when German thinkers concern themselves with Geist, spirit, treating it as a vast and all-encompassing unfolding of, of the world, of culture, of human nature, this is really the idea that they're going back to. And that's not just Hegel who speaks of Geist, but that tradition of Geist as a kind of an all-encompassing concepts-based uh, notion of reality, of the world, of history, has a long history in Germany. And, and Gavin McCall comes back to these thinkers again and again. There's a Spinozist element there, there's a Leibnizian element there, uh, and later on a Dilthian element there. But there's a kind of a notion of reality as this upwelling of meaning that gets taken over later, and in some ways obscured, not only by scientists, but also Heidegger's notion of being, which has a, still has a strongly Aristotelian Thomist scholastic uh, element to it. So he, he's going to end up feeling that Heidegger's rejection of Plato in, fa in favor of Aristotle is going to hide Heidegger from a way of looking at the nature of reality that would actually have been really helpful for him. Right? So he's missing out Plato. He's also not really that into Hegel and Gadamer says, but come back, come back. There's good in there. Um, so he's more interested in those thinkers and Joyzen's interest in exploring history as a living source, the living source of all that is the human. He says the thing that we've forgotten, the key concept, is this notion of tact or taste. Okay. Um, attention to history and culture directs our attention to a kind of experience quite different from the one that serves in investigating natural laws. Uh, the first section of Truth and Method charts a history of tact and taste as the way that we explore meanings. These are ideas that were accorded little significance in modern thinking, partly because they come to be seen as very relativistic, subjective qualities. And when I first read Truth and Method, I'm thinking, why is he talking about tact? Tact? Like, not embarrassing people in public? Like, that's his concern? Taste? You know, why I quite like this artist and not that. How could this really be relevant to anything of any interest to anybody? Um, uh, but he takes us back. At one time, there was a widely acknowledged notion of what he called the sensus communis, the communal sense, which could signify both the communal meaning of something. So imagine a little German village. There's a meaning of word, a phrase, a term. Everybody gets it. Right? Because we're talking partly about cultural communities of meaning here. They all have this sensus communis. Maybe outside the village, people don't get it. But what it means to be part of that community from a meaning-based, semantic perspective is that you have this sensus communis. So it's both a communal meaning of something, that shared judgment built up through communication of ideas within a community, and also it's an, a, a quality, an organ of perception, the communal capacity of perception, um, that shared ability to arrive at and sense with fair accuracy the meanings that are being traded within that particular context or village. So different villages or cultures might have different communal senses. Uh, if you put, you know, so as you go to this village, once you've been there a while, you get the census communis. You acquire that sense and you can feel what the meanings are. Go to a different village, you'll have to learn it differently. 
Uh, if you put them together, amalgamated, perhaps those two villages would eventually inevitably develop a new communal sense, a shared one. The members of the community would by definition be able to judge such meanings. Such a sense might then transcend uh, regional history. So to become part of the communal sense of that village, you don't necessarily have to go there. Fortunately, if you live 2,000 years later, but you read the right text, you immerse yourself in the language, if you like, enough, you too can become part of that sense community. Right? So, it's, so there are other ways to get into that community. Um, uh, a diligent and sensitive reader of Plato, or of any Indian thinker or poet, must eventually become a member of that community, a user of that census communus, acquiring its organ of meaning sense. And Gadamer himself was really sensitive to this. One of the first languages he learnt was French, and he loved it. He, he was being told off by his father for studying this twaddle, artsy rubbish. And French was more or less fairly useless. And he learned French with the passion of someone who wants to have another world to step into. And he later felt this way, I think, about Plato, that he had entered more than his people like Heidegger, who were kind of using the classicists, the classic thinkers, he had entered into their world. And if you read dialogue and dialectic, he, you, he's always sitting inside their conversation, looking at their meanings from within, looking at what cultural influences are influencing them. And later, that's really important for how he understands poetry, what it means to enter into the communal sense of a work of poetry, um, and to learn to read Solana, to learn to read Rilke, etc. So this is very helpful for him, um, and he f feels that Helmholtz had pointed the way in which understanding of culture required this kind of communal sense. Uh, he also, Helmholtz describes it as a psychological tact that here replaces the conscious drawing of inferences, where tact is more like sensitivity to meaning. So tact isn't just not insulting someone, it's getting the structures, the meanings, the census communis of a place so that you can act within it appropriately. So that tact is really important. And in fact, it's a, it's a sensitivity to meaning. It's a virtue in itself. Um, and we can glean insights into the nature of this special sense from some of those earlier things. It's helpful to go back to people around Helmholtz uh, who use this idea. One of its qualities is that rather than reducing the field of reality into a kind of a secondary derivative practical representation, it maintains the living holistic character of experience. Gadamer cites Ertinger, who says that what people in the 19th and 20th centuries like to call intuition um, is actually brought back to its metaphysical foundations in that earlier perspective. So I feeling about something and that seems an odd thing oh we've got an intuition but we don't pay any attention to intuitions they seem silly subjective imprecise but if you go back and look at it in terms of the tact for a census communis um, then in fact we're going back to what he calls the structure of living organic being in which the whole is in each individual so each person becomes a kind of a lens by which you can see the whole of that community sense right so so suddenly the individual is not merely an individual anymore, but kind of the meeting point of meanings. And Gadamer notes this idea applies not only to languages, which are an easier model to understand, but also to everything else, to manners, to artistic taste. You can't read an art properly. I mean, you can do things with it. You can bring the art in as a kind of a symbol within your world. But to get a piece of art, you have to have a sense as communist for it. You have to have the tact or the taste for it. Um, so it applies to art, um, 
but also to ethics. Ethics is not really universal. And even Kant's definition of ethics, to try and take what you understand as ethical and apply it to others, is about trying to extend a communal sense. But there's no fundamental, basic, obvious ethics. It's always about learning the communal sense of what is good and what is bad. And that's, again, a very platonic insight. His notion of the good is by no means just a good concept. It's actually about acknowledging the relativism of different goods. Uh, so if you really love Justin Timberlake and you really love Heathcliff, they seem to obviously have very different directions of good in them. But what's important is that in both cases, I don't know why that example came to <laughs> um, but in both cases, the good is, irrespective of the specific qualities that make them good, the good is the very principle of their being, something of value that stands at the heights of that meaning system. Right? And so that's it acknowledges a relativist notion of good. So even ethics uh, is determined by this. And Gadamer notes this is an important idea. He notes it affects the original and true meanings. It, if we think about this clearly, it takes us back to the original and true meanings of concepts such as art, history, the creative. So what it is to be creative is affected by this. Worldview, what it is to have a worldview. Interiority, he says. So what is going on in the individual? What does that world look like in the individual? Expression, style, and symbol. Right. Uh, for we need tact to understand and communicate, to possess a coherent, coherent view of the world and to make effective art or receive art as meaningful, uh, to understand a style, or even to aid someone in the way that will best benefit them, i.e. to engage in ethics. All of this requires tact, this communal sense. A further implication is that this notion of tact, um, which, which Kant turns into taste, does not excise fact from value. Okay, so whereas the scientific discourse is only interested in facts, regularities of a certain kind, this allows us to incorporate all that is of value in terms of good and bad, aesthetic, beautiful and ugly, um, pleasant and unpleasant, etc., etc. So we have, uh, in that sense, also a more holistic conception of meaning. And one of the things he wants to say is that this undergoes a, sort of a tragic loss when Kant comes in and influenced by people like Newton, influenced by people like Descartes who want certainty, um, influenced by this whole gradual development of a, of a, of a, a certainty-oriented outlook in the West, Kant, say, Kant, Kant writes different critiques. So his critique of pure reason is separate from the critique of judgment and separate from the critique of aesthetic taste. And reason is the certain one, and the others are very different. And Gadam wants to say that division is one of the moments at which a dichotomy con fundamentally confuses philosophy thereafter. Now, what is Gadamer's own model for thinking about this better? This is where we go to that image of play in Truth and Method again. The analogy that he develops um, between... We could actually, religious studies is quite helpful for this. In the sphere of religion, tact is necessary to understand a worldview. We get that. And a worldview and its expressions in doctrines, practices, narratives, arts, etc. Uh, to negotiate successfully the meanings of a culture, of a worldview, of a religion. Um, whether we're no negotiating it as a world to live in, to be there, or as a set of ideas that we have to translate into another language. So we'll have a different sense as communists and we can live in both of them. Um, Indeed, tact in the world of meaning is not so different from the awareness of our environment and its laws that al allows us to move, act, and navigate the physical world. So being in a culture is not so different from being in a room and learning to see the stuff that's in the room and learning to understand the, the rules of 
gravity, of movement, etc., of mobility, um, of materiality that determine the space. Once you learn all those rules, you can move in a space, just as once you learn the rules, you can move in a meaning world. Now, that, that analogy of kind of learning to see meaning in that uh, interactive environmental way is the basis for Gladimir's core explanation of the nature of meaning in terms of play. He cites the nature of play, um, which he understood in its widest sense that encompasses games, dances, plays of light and phenomena. And he cites this as a helpful analogy. So in order to play basketball, I've never played basketball in my life, one must learn the rules. Bounce, the don't kick the ball, identify the baskets as targets, learn the principles of scoring, understand that there are two teams and how you can interact with them, etc. And the agreement, the agreement to play is the business of learning and following these rules. Once one has begun the action of playing, one becomes part of the play of the game. And we'll talk more about this play idea in next week's seminar, where we see why he's actually re-describing a different metaphysics or ontology of reality. Um, the way in which he starts to look a bit like a kind of a weird monist or pantheist. Anyway, he wants to say that really once you play the game, you become the game. You disappear as an individual. You become just game. And all individuals become games. So the game is not just the rules. The game is the thing that's happening of which you are part. One's individuality is immersed in the complex, shared, interrelational whole of the game. So he wants to direct our attention to the nature of play as a form of existence. Um, play itself, he says, amongst other things, contains its own, even sacred, seriousness. Quote. So play is not silly. He wants to make that point very strongly because play had been portrayed as sort of a silly, uh, leisurely, uh, merely aesthetic, merely subjective activity at the time. Someone called Gutzinger wrote a book called H Homo Ludens, uh, Man as the Player. It was kind of early anthropology, so humans like to play. Uh, but, but it was also then seen as quite primitive. And Gladwell wants to say play is not primitive, play is not silly, play is actually terribly serious. So to use the football analogy, obviously, uh, a game in the Football World Cup exists only insofar as the players adhere to the rules and do not suddenly begin to sit upon the ball, puncture it, or walk away with it. Right? The, the game will disappear, it will cease to exist in the moment that they let the rules go. They certainly cease to be part of it. Uh, and so tact, taste, the communal sense, like football, relies upon its players. Right? The rules that define any field of meaning exist as an essence, quote unquote, that reaches presentation through the participants. It has to be actualized. Uh, no language is really just there in the abstract. No meaning sits there in the abstract. Everything is constantly being actualized. It's very, very parole rather than long kind of an idea. Um, and he goes on and talks about this at greater length. He cites Schlegel's insight that all the sacred games of art are only remote imitations of the infinite play of the world the eternally self-creating work of art. So what we're always doing in the world is playing, but this is the play of the world, the self-creating artwork that we're always engaged in. Even science is part of the artwork. There's a creativity, there's a, a participatory element to it. Um, and that's, that's one important point. Thus the learning, um, so, so importantly the understanding, understanding the character of understanding as it appears in play and in all language game playing, for this, Gadam taps into the sense in which we have to submit to other forces. Going back to that experience of bicycle riding. He's very keen to say that meaning is not relativism, it's not subjectivism. It is not something where we can just say, I'm going to make the meaning be this. 
Okay, and this was always the big fear of postmodernism. In fact, this insight gets ignored from him, and people spend the next, I don't know, 30 years being worried that people like Derrida have destroyed meaning, right? Nothing can mean anything anymore. But Gadamer says that's not how it works. Notice that you, as, as the football example shows, you can't make it up. It is not up to you. I mean, within a certain level, you can do stuff with the ball. You can extend the game. The game is a creation that you are creating. But you can't get out of the rules. You can shift them a bit. You can say, why don't we try playing it like this? But if you simply shift them too far, you've left the census communis, you've left the community, and the meaning, the game, the play goes. So we don't, in fact, we're not in control. It's, it's not a relativism where you can do what you want, say what you like, mean what you like. Um, one does not force meaning, reality, or truth into new channels any more than one forces the bike with one's mere will to go forward. Instead, instead, play represents an order in which the to and fro motion of play follows of itself. And this refers phenomenologically to the, only to the absence of strain experienced subjectively as relaxation. To, to enter into the understanding of something, we relax into it. We, don't, we can't force our way in. We have to give ourselves into it. There's a submission in that sense involved here. The structure absorbs the player into itself. Um, and we have to kind of let that happen. This is not, not mean to say that languages or games are wholly determinative of the subject of participant, however, so we need to strike a balance. This is also not uh, a cultural determinism. Right? Culture says these are the structures you've got, they've made you who you are, you can't get out of them, that's, that's it. So it's not a, a strong cultural determinist structuralist account in that way. Remember, it only exists through us. We can enter into other uh, meaning communities, we can mix two villages together, and in fact, we're going to see the communal sense is always expanding. That's the whole fusion of horizons idea. Every time we play the game, the, the, play, the game is actually expanding. Just as a horizon um, is in fact something that is never really uh, fixed, horizons fade into the distance. We could see a bit better, we'd see a bit further. And horizons move with us. Yeah. Um, and so that means we have a certain freedom within the game. The freedom of play is not without danger. Rather, the game itself is a risk for the player, the game of understanding, of meaning. One can play only with serious possibilities. And the attraction that the game exercises on the player lies in this risk. If for the sake of enjoying his freedom of decision, somebody avoids making pressing decisions or plays with possibilities that he is not seriously envisaging, and which therefore offer no risk that he will actually choose them, we say he is only playing with life. So actually, if we say, look, in this game, you can do whatever you want. Here are the rules, but you don't have to follow them, and the person doesn't follow them and just plays it up and doesn't do anything in particular. We say, well, this is not serious. He's not engaging. He actually uses the phrase here, the spielt, we're just playing with life. Right? And if you do that, take it away from the game example, you do that in life. If you do it in a meaning, if you go to a village in India and play, you know, then you're not going to get anywhere. So there's a, there's a responsibility, there's a freedom, there's a constraint, a creativity and a risk, um, and a great seriousness involved in all of this. Um, I'm going to jump a little bit because I don't want to run out of time. This means various things. Um, one important point, just to kind of flag up along the way, is that in terms of religious studies where we have various debates uh, between, for instance, the dead text, 
and the living term. And this is something we see a lot, I think, in religious studies between textual studies and anthropological studies. The notion that you've got dead texts and we're just reading them, but they're really kind of dead. We don't really know what they mean. No one's using them anymore. We can't get back to the original meaning. Whereas we can go out into the field and see living texts happening. Um, Gadamer says, in a sense, we need to remember that all of this is living text. Uh, this was always originally living text. He talks at length about Plato, Plato's dialogues and how you have to remember that they're really, try and see them almost as transcriptions of real dialogues that happened and that were very indeterminate, very uncertain, constantly unfolding. Obviously they're not. Plato's, if you read the dialogues, Plato's altered them so that everybody agrees with Socrates. Do you not think that that is true? Why it is Socrates? What a surprise, right? So it's clearly, you know, it's been orchestrated. But don't forget that this is meant to represent the indeterminacy of actual speech underneath. There is living material there. And of course, in some ways, he's coming out of very much the Lutheran tra tradition um, that he was re-engaging with through Rudolf Volkmann. His mother was a pietist, a German pietist. Uh, not a strict Lutheran, but she has a strong sense that what's really the important part of religion is your inner engagement. And he gets from this, from Lutheran hermeneutics, the notion that the Bible is not a fixed text, but a message, a word that speaks directly to you. And when this gets through to Rudolf Volkmann, he gets from him a strong sense that actually the really the important point is that you can put aside, you can demythologize, if you like, the apparent strong propositional assertions of the text. The real text happens in its speaking to the individual. And that goes back to Luther's idea that only faith, only a relationship with God is really the important message of, of Christian revelation here. And that for him is important in text as well. So it, it only really existed um, at the time in the experiences of every person who's read it, in your reading of it. It only it, it has to be actualized. It exists in that moment. That doesn't mean that your reading of it is completely divorced from the author's reading of it. It does not mean that the author is dead, right? that, that idea. Uh, it means that you're playing ball. Right, and the author throws his ball and you catch it. You might decide not to catch the ball that the author throws. You might make up your own rules, but you're no longer playing the game with the author. You're no longer in the communal meaning sense. You can be said to then be responding to the text, creating your own interpretation of the text, treating it as poetry if you like, but you cannot translate the text because you're not making connection with what the other person has thrown to you if you like. Right? or what the author's thrown to you, or what later readers or whoever have thrown to you. So there is that constraint comes in. And that's important in all sorts of ways. I've got a section on what it would mean to apply that to concepts of the authority of the Quran. I mean, it's an interesting text where precisely the Quran is the example of a text that is supposed to be uh, eternal, um, in that sense, unrevealed. It's not supposed to be a text that came out in its historical time. It's interesting because the Quran says a lot about the historical time in which it's revealed, but the, theologically it's, it's meant to be an eternal text without unrooted in historical context, and the mind from which it came is unique in all forms of mind because it's outside of historical context. It has no horizon, no communal sense in that sense. So what does it mean to read the Quran? And I think that's interesting in all kinds of ways, um, and I, the there could be some really interesting application of Gadamer to kind of Quranic studies. I don't think it necessarily means that you have to admit that the Quran is um, a historically generated text, but it perhaps would go back to the idea that the Quran as a written text would be the secondary 
phenomenon. The Quran as a received read heard text is the primary phenomenon. For what is text if not communication? Right, that communication is just a bit of scribbles on a piece of paper. And that then goes into what actually some Muslim scholars do talk about. Muhammad Iqbal um, is an interesting reform uh, Muslim, Muslim reformer, if you like, who was highly influenced by reading lots of Hegel, uh, but has a strong sense that the Quran was meant to be part of the ongoing sort of Hebrew, if you like, revelation, a historically developing, emerging, prophetic, and therefore message-based form of text. Right. So in some ways it speaks to that kind of understanding. Okay, so um, I'm going to mostly summarize the rest. One thing that this implies for Gadamer is that uh, you could use poetry as one uh, point on the spectrum of what text can be. So poetry is an interesting case of language that rather than, usually language is constrained in that it's part of a communal sense. It throws you the meaning and then you throw it back, either by talking to someone, in which case you have to be constrained to the game. You have to make sure someone can catch the ball. Or perhaps by applying it. You can't read a text on how to build a bridge and go, yeah, I'm going to just interpret this however I want, because then your bridge won't work. So as a prac you're, then you're, treat, you're putting it to a community with actual real-world experiences, laws of physics, etc. Um, or you're bringing it back into conversation, into the rules determined by, for instance, narrative. So I can't read the beginning of the Brothers Karamazov and say, hey, maybe Alyosha is Ivan, and maybe this is that, maybe, and then still expect the rest of the narrative to make sense, right? not as a coherent whole. So there are all sorts of ways in which our meanings are constrained. But poetry is an interesting case of a form of language that opens that up and says, you don't have to give me back the ball. Take this this message and let it go into your world of horizons of understandings of meanings and just see what it does. Now you may then want to take your understanding of the poetry and express it to someone else, in which case you're going to have to form, reform from your world a new meaning, a new message, a new text to give. Right? That's fine. But poetry has an interesting resonance in which it is able to kind of go far through our understanding, through our context, our meaning world, without um, being constricted very much, very little constraint. And he says it's kind of a helpful reminder of one of the ways in which language can work. All of this, one of the things that he wants to bring out of this is the idea that every time we learn a new form of language, A, we are taken up into its play. We are ourselves changed. We become part of that community, which means we're not, we're not individuals entering into different spheres. We are becoming someone else each time we learn. And that's part of what the fusion of horizons does. By giving us a broader horizon, it's actually making us into a different and actually broader person. And Gadamer explicitly uses the language of enrichment here. He talks uh, in his later early works, he talks about what it is to read Plato and be enriched by letting yourself see in his, his eyes. Um, and later on, when he's actually engaging with issues of globalism, he says to learn about another culture is to let yourself be enriched. There's an interesting link to his mother's pietist spirituality here. Gadamer writes that he's a very secular figure in some ways himself, not an atheist. Uh, for him, that divide between atheism and belief is, is artificial in many ways. He's more of an agnostic with an interest. And because his mother's, he says that his mother's spiritual pietism was not concerned with doctrine. It affirmed an inner um, form of relation to the world, which was highly spiritual without worrying about the facts. 
And on the other side, his father, the scientist, was fully secular, uh, talked about how ridiculous transubstantiation sounds to a chemist, um, but at the same time felt that the truths of nature indicated some mysterious higher source that in itself could be seen as a spiritual truth, right? The church doctrine he was disinterested in. And what Gadamer gets from the kind of the pietist side is the idea of humility, a very Lutheran idea. Again, he's been reading a lot of Kierkegaard, and he wants to say the notion of a self that is within you, that is silent, that is calm, that is constantly being shattered on the face of its limitations, what it is not yet, what it does not yet know, what it could become, that shattering and remaking yourself and opening yourself up to your infinitude is a positive thing and the basis of a lot of spirituality. There's a danger of seeing that pietism as a negative, humility in the Christian context as a negative, you are less than. But here where you don't really have it as humility in the face of a higher God who looks down, he sees it, I think, as a positive. And so when he wants to look at the notion of understanding as a constant shattering of yourself and remaking of yourself in terms of new meaning communities, remember the community constitutes you. You're not a being who has meaning, you are meaning, you are a new nexus of meanings each time um that's that's perfectly fine that's a good thing that's in fact he would link it back to aristotle the notion that the seed has to stop being a seed if it's going to become a sapling and the sapling will have to give up being a sapling if it wants to become an oak tree right similarly we too have to let go at each stage and let ourselves become new beings so this is where his notion of text study moves into a notion of the human, the nature of the human, and indeed the proper destiny, fulfillment and flourishing of the human, what it is to understand as in fact a fulfilling of our nature. If, if seeds are meant to become trees, humans are meant to become constantly growing minds, right? an ever widening horizon. Um, and the last thing I'll say I think about that and his notion of language, if these systems, which themselves are constantly uh, shifting, changing, of course, no language system is ever static, just as the language in no village is ever actually static. And our process of growing to learn a single system, follow it in its movements, and indeed widen out to a wider and wider range of systems is kind of a, a positive fulfillment of, of our very nature as meaning beings. He also wants to say that there is another level of language and we talked a little bit yesterday in one of the seminars about whether um, we receive consciousness and its, its meaning is intact. We get, we get meaning like this. And there's no underneath level of indeterminate, uncertain, as yet unstructured experience. Um, now, for Gadamer, this issue, you, is, there a, is there a basic level that gets put into meanings or do we get meaning immediately or automatically? This goes back to Kant and the categories. For Gadamer... Um, he would not say that there is a basic level of perception that we then get put that we then put into cultural meanings or that gets trained into cultural meanings. He, he rejects Husserl's notion of hyletic data, a raw kind of perception level. He says that that we've we've given up on that after Kant, and actually mm -hmm. Husserl's kind of chasing some weird old fantasy concept there. Um, but he does want to say that there is, if you like, a level at which meaning has not yet emerged. We are, we are, as well as being actual meanings in action, actualized, we are a constant potentiality of meaning. And for this, he talks a lot, particularly in uh, this book, Gadamer and Salam, 
in an essay, Who Am I and Who Are You, about a, seri a series of poems that Paul Celan wrote called The Breath, what is it called? The, not The Breath Poems, The Breath Cycle. The most famous one is The Breath Crystal. So he's interested in this set of poems on the breath crystal. And for him, they're poems that come back again and again to the idea that there's breathing, there is this inner indeterminacy um, of the human, which could become anything. Right? In breath, we see this readiness to speak, an enormous inexhaustible potential potentiality to create meaning that is fundamental to our very life. Without it, we are dead. Without breath, we are dead. And this irony of the human, that this intangible inner world becomes moist, kind of back to organic metaphors, world that's within, as it emerges into the outside world, becomes structured. Breath becomes crystallized in language. Right? And that crystal world, we are constantly creating around us. But Gadamer actually, more rarely, but importantly, does say, don't forget the breath level as well. Right? There is always this potentiality. It, it reminds me of Heidegger's language about upwelling, um, the, the Ursprünglichkeit, the upwellingness of truth. Uh, Gadamer also, and maybe and he's being reminded of this by Heidegger in his talk about, about Earth, for instance, he wants to say again and again that there is this, this side of, um, of the human, that, and he links it to Augustine's notion of the verbum interius, the idea of an inner world that is always ready in us to emerge. Right? So there is an unfixed aspect of the human, not an unfixed level of perceptions, but rather something like a constant potentiality to become meaning. And that idea needs, I think, to be clarified somewhat, but it's an, it's an interesting point that he brings out there. He talks about, and he says Celan is able to articulate this because he himself is so fascinated. The, the poem series is called The Breath Turn. And Celan himself is so interested in the breathless stillness of muted silence. Uses that phrase, the breathless stillness of muted silence, is as important for Gadamer's notion of language as the speaking. Okay, so it's taking us back to that reflective moment. Um, and actually, it's interesting if you ever get a chance to look at that cycle of poems, they're great. Salan talks a lot about this. From its soil, you need a new our name. So taking the soil of some raw, some, some silent raw darkness and needing names from it. He talks about catching words with nets in the sea. Right, so constantly, wherever we're forming language, we're remembering that there's this kind of prolific, fecund, indeterminate, rich world of infinite possibility ready to become meaning. And that, in a sense, is what life is, not the meanings as they already exist out there alone. Um, and what do I want to say with that? I, I don't know, but I think come, I'll come back to this in the next class, which looks more at, at his concept of what reality is. But there's something in here about what it is for him to have an internal spiritual life. There's something in there, I think, for him about the human as not only celebrating its constant growing, right, so not just the tree with its foliage, but also the fact that it is able to grow. This is back to the vitalism, the principle of some sort of force, of some vitality, of some constant emergence of consciousness and of meaning that itself is something to be appreciated, marveled at, as seen as a fundamental foundation of what human existence is. So I think that's all I meant to say for today. I went on too long.
any comment would be really welcome. <laughs> so to turn this into something. Your book. So I have to turn it into something fairly coherent and rational, <laughs> which is a shame. The, the comparison with the Heidegger is useful, I think, because the Heidegger, these are more symbolic images. And in other cases, you get people using them as metaphors or analogies. But I think the, the vitalist background, the Hegelian background, um, the, all these kind of, these characters, all, there's a whole tradition of, of German philosophy that gets ignored because of the, partly because of the pantheism strike, the pan pantheism controversy, in which anyone who looked a bit pantheistic or monistic, basically a Spinozist, was brushed aside and actually got ignored a lot of them and Hegel's complicated figures people feel very uncomfortable about um, and for Gadamer all those characters are really important he directly cites them and he cites them in their scientificness he, you know, he cites them in saying these principles of organic development extend into meaning he he's really making the assertion that it's not just a, a, a chance analogy the actual it's there because they're actually expressions of the same forces right um, and so, yeah, I think that's right, that he is doing something more with that. But the curious thing, in some ways, is that you could say either that he's saying, well, meaning is just an expression of the organic, consciousness is just an expression of the organic, or you could flip it and say, well, the, the organic material world is really just a manifestation of consciousness, right? So Hegel would say it's all geist, it's all spirit. And that's what's weird about Hegel for us now. We're like, what, the matter is spirit and the mind is spirit? That's crazy. But for them, that's not a problem. You know, and there are good reasons that Heidegger tries to bring out why it's useful to look at it that way. But either, whichever way you do it, mind is emerging from consciousness, or, uh, sorry, mind is emerging from matter, or matter is just a mode of consciousness. There's a commonality of structure there, which means that these metaphors can be used in either sphere to illuminate things. You can say, yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, very interesting. And I think I think Gadamer, Deleuze and Badiou are the ones who have actually the, the closest heritage in terms of this this stuff, which is interesting in itself. And maybe because we have the Hegelian a Hegelian connection there. I don't I actually I don't know Deleuze and Badiou's connection with Plato. just rewritten the Republic? <laughs> I'm going to do that. What can, which great text can I rewrite in history? I'm going to rewrite Romeo and Juliet too. That'd be great. <laughs> but, but that's interesting. I mean, I think that's really important. And again, it's that whole tradition in which, you know, Plato's forms get treated by Christianity as part of a dualism because they're concerned with Gnosticism. But Plato's not doing that. He's, he's defining the nature of all conceptuality. And he kind of is acknowledging that, you know, everything consists of conceptuality and if you look at texts like the Parmenides he does a really good detailed what looks like a kind of semi-structuralist um, analysis of the very constitution of, of conceptuality that's going to be important for dialectic and you know, Hegel later but that stuff um, is fits beautifully into kind of the modern work that people are doing um, after Hyde I think one of the things that's interesting about Gadamer, Deleuze and Badiou they're all Getting, they're clarifying stuff that Heidegger didn't make very clear, amongst other things. So in that respect, there's a post-Heideggerian move to to sort of tidy up things in which he had trouble with, I think. And some would say he had trouble with them because he was still rooted, actually, in certain ways of looking at things. He still wanted to be uh, a Thomist uh, Catholic, for instance. so helpful. I mean, when you look back at you know, Descartes is a mathematician, Spinoza in many respects is a mathematician, Leibniz is a mathematician, you know, that, that whole tradition gets lost and, and, and appropriated for science in ways that are, that are problematic. There's a period, I think, when I was first studying in the in the 90s, when um, when the notion of recognizing that something like Gadamer and something like Wittgenstein were really not terribly far apart was kind of an important moment where people went, oh, I see, okay, we've reached this on both different fronts, the analytic and the practical.
understanding you need to go and talk to the world understanding the world is a precondition to understanding so mm-hmm. you can attach must be linked in relation to practice as well mm-hmm. with habits habits mm-hmm. they have to be yeah. inducted into practice yeah practice is, is, is pure, it's all culture to some degree yeah. it's sort of uh, yeah. we, we've always got to practice precondition it's mm. based on culture sometimes uh, of cultivation you have to cultivate yeah, that's good. And I think the language can often confuse things here between you, culture on the one hand, we tend to see as already existing, fixed, uh, s- culture specifically, historical culture specific meaning structures. Cultivation is more about the various different things that shape our meaning. And I, I think that's right. He, he does think that, although he thinks that it's not, he's not a cultural determinist because he thinks that the things that shape us are much wider than specific actual cultures. So in that sense, we, we talked a bit about this yesterday, we're, we're learning meanings from our culture. We're also learning it from our physical interactions with objects bodily. We're learning meanings. And I think, you know, I'm not, he would say that this, the, the communities, the cultures are never fixed and finished. I'm just, I'm just thinking through that's right and also why it's not, doesn't amount to cultural determinism. Each culture, in fact, has a dispersing horizon. You know, Greek culture disperses into perhaps Persian culture, um, modern western culture has edges that disperse into middle eastern culture so it's so it's always a kind of a complexity and involves more than just actual cultures that shape us but the shapedness i think is absolutely right and he uses a wonderful image borrowed from aristotle he says how do we acquire meaning um he says aristotle says when an army is in movement when does it stop someone says stop it doesn't stop at that moment Right, it slowly stops. First, one guy, a couple of stops. There's this bit, this bit's still moving. At what point in that corporate um, development did it stop? He says that there is no stop moment. Stop was a multifaceted process with a kind of a critical momentum, but it's always of that structure. And he says that's true when you learn words. So he almost goes back to this kind of childhood language learning and says, When did you learn the word strawberry? After the first strawberry, the second strawberry? Well, actually, no, you kind of got it. You were able to play the game after a certain point, but you're still learning the meaning of the word strawberry. And that's okay. That's, that's fine. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know how I'm bringing that back to the original question, but, um, but that's right. Tact is, in the same way, tact is acquired mm-hmm. gradually, and it's, and it's always actually in, under revision. One more question. Does the root tact is prophet from the first section? they have any potential for tact? Because tact, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm really getting the question. Mm. Mm. I think, mm. 
I think that for Gadamer, so if you if you go back and look at his reading of the Parmenides, for instance, he would say that every there's this kind of idea that every idea entails every other idea in existence. So if I know strawberry, then at some level I know a lot of other fruit. I know the concept fruit. I know fruit in relation to vegetable, in relation to food, in relation to non-food objects, in relation to like eventually the knowledge of any single thing implies either a full knowledge or an implicit conceptual potential knowledge of other categories. And so I think for him to know anything is never to be bound fully. There's always a potential to move into other things. And that's partly why in Plato's um, in the Meno, for instance, you can teach people stuff they don't already know because premises are underlying. Um, the, the underlying premise is somewhere. There's always a thread that you can follow through. And that's because of the nature of concepts themselves. To be conceptual is to have the potential to develop into other conceptual worlds. So I, I think for him, we never are isolated. And, and the kid who has no language and has been sitting under a tree eating dirt for 17 years, that's a very unlikely <laughs> scenario, um, still has the potential to, to enter into that language community. It might take a while and it might have to move through He'll have to expand his horizons and, and his game will have to very gradually shift from dirt, hot, cold, to um, solid, non-solid, to uh, you know, person, non-person, to happy, non-happy, to, and, but eventually you can get from that. So the, this, the idea that horizons are never fixed, they're always in movement and ready to move further, I think would mean that for him that that's not the case. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, um, tact is tact is how your conceptualization engages with its environment and so I think you're right maybe that's a helpful thing that remembering that tact is always relative so you're right you take the you take the baby who's been let's turn it back into the baby because a 17 year old who's been eating dirt <laughs> is just unlikely and you take this this feral child and you put them in a sailing boat now what's going to happen is that they are going to employ some form of interaction and it will be based on some form already of a sense of knowledge of context of, of a set of concepts to do with direction, of space, of object, of things you do with objects. And they will grow an increasingly good understanding of the language of that boat. Things that do and don't open, things that do and don't speak, things that do and don't move, that have certain different impacts and effects and so on and so forth, causal, causal relations. And in doing that, they're going from a very low level of tact. Now I know I can sit on the floor, I don't get the rest of it yet, right? in which they're having a fairly unsuccessful game-playing experience, right? So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to eat the boat, but it's not working. I'm not getting the language here. To gradually a point where they've acquired enough tact that they actually are within the community, which means they can get the boat to do some basic things that the boat is meant to do. But in that context, I guess it's, 
it's remembering that it's partly always for Gadamer, partly because of that Parmenidean point about meaning, you're always on a sliding scale. And there are no boundaries, pretty much anywhere. But there's always a gradual entering into. But I, but I think your spatial analogy would be useful. Because with, with humans, we, we feel like we have a stronger sense of, I just did an understanding. Whereas in being in the world, you never go, I just, I just can't do it. I, just, I mean, you might, but even then you're doing something right we don't we don't generally have the moment where we're like you move you your confusion expresses itself in a language of trying to make sense of things of testing concepts you know so that so that you're always developing in a sense tact to greater or lesser degrees for different communities be interesting actually to explore <laughs> forms of forms of consciousness that try to have re relatively little content or engage relatively little in languages would be interesting but just briefly get Gavin your, your point I don't know if I answered it really the, the point about art art and ethics but I think to say yes it is tact is exactly it's everything and, and that and the ethics the art one we can see it makes sense what it means to understand an art and he says style is exactly that. Understanding a style is all about acquiring a tact for that medium. But ethics is kind of the more challenging example. Yeah, that's right. And I think in some ways it's an easier concept for us now because we have the notion of culturally cultural relativism in regard to ethics. So we can just go, oh yeah, okay, that's great. I get it. But this person may actually want to be sacrificed on the stone. <laughs> yeah, just come back from Peru. Uh, you know, this person, hey, yeah, sacrifice me to the sun god. That's what I want. Get away, Spanish conquistadors. Let them do it. You know, so that's fine. I think that's that's right. That is entailed. I've gone over by 15 minutes. Thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate it. It's hugely helpful. Thank you.